Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our Gospel reading comes from quite early on in Mark's Gospel. We've uh, just kind of dived into Mark's Gospel. Um, But um, we are now at chapter 3. Um, the beginning of Mark's gospel takes us straight into Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River and then goes into the temptation and the calling of the Twelve and then goes into many of the healings that take place. Uh, Jesus heals many people. He's healed uh, the man who's been lowered down. Um, And this finds us at that time when there are so many crowds. Jesus, there are crowds who've come around him. He's healed many. He goes, sets apart, um, chooses the 12, appoints the 12 to be his close disciples, although we know that there are many others who are also following along with him. And then he comes down from the time apart with the disciples and again crowds come around him. Well, we know from scripture we have several um, over 20 individual healing stories about Jesus healing individuals or sets of 10 like in the 10 lepers. But those are, are individual stories that we know of healings. But also in John's Gospel, we know John says, if we were to write everything that Jesus did and said, it could not be contained. And so there are many more things, and this is one of those instances where we get this uh, look into what is going on. There are so many people who have come that Jesus doesn't even have time to stop and eat. And so um, the words going out here and there, um, he's mad, um, he's in league with the demons, with with Satan. But basically what is happening is, is that heaven's dimension, God's rule, has broken into this earthly realm. So this sin, uh, this sin-laden, fallen world now has God's reign coming into it. And of course, what happens? But those powers, principalities, who are ruling in this earthly realm are not happy with it. And so they come up in the way of the scribes accusing him of doing these healings, these many, many healings, through the power of the devil. And um, they don't see the fallacious nature of their argument, evidently, until Jesus uh, opens their eyes to it. He says to them, how can, and I'm reading a translation by N.T. Wright. Yes, laugh away. I know I mention him often, but that's okay. Uh, So, how can the accuser cast out the accuser? If a kingdom splits into two factions, it can't last. If a household splits into two factions, it can't last. So if the accuser revolts against himself and splits into two, he can't last. His time is up. But remember, 
No one can get into a strong man's house and steal his property unless first they tie up the strong man. Then they can plunder his house. What does that mean? Well, the strong man who has earth, this earthly realm under his thrall, is Satan, is the enemy of God's people. But Jesus is stronger. So Jesus binds up the strong man, and then he can start to plunder Satan's territory by bringing in heaven's realm, heaven's dimension into the earthly realm under the thrall of Satan. Jesus is stronger than this strong man. See, what what both the gospel reading is doing, what Jesus is doing in the gospel, and what Paul is doing in the epistle, is pulling back the veil. They're both pulling back the veil so that we can see the really real realm of what is heaven's dimension. Remember, heaven is not up there. Heaven is intersecting with this earthly realm. We see in the Old Testament story in the garden, both heaven and earth's dimensions were one in the garden because God could walk with his creation before the fall. They were not separated. They were not separate. They were not apart. Heaven and earth were one place because heaven is God's dwelling place. Earth is man's dwelling place. And the two were one in the garden until the serpent came and humanity fell. And then they were expelled from the garden. And then we get a separation of these two dimensions. Because if we were in the presence of a holy God, all of the sin that is part of us would be consumed and therefore we would be consumed. But thanks be to God, Jesus comes so that we take on his righteousness so that there is part of us now that we become have in heaven's dimension, but at the same time we're living in earth's dimension. So if you, if you want to think about it as two kind of concentric circles, if you will, that are parallel, but that connect at different places, and they connect primarily in Jesus Christ, who is fully human, earth's dimension, and fully divine, heaven's dimension, knit together in one person, in the temple, which is Jesus Christ. And so those two are connected and through him we likewise are. But what happens when heaven, when God's rule comes in to this earthly realm under the thrall of Satan, our enemy, but that things start to come in opposition to heaven's rule. And this happens. The scribes are accusing him of doing this, of of being in, in league with the enemy. And, and his friends and his family are saying he's mad. You know, this isn't, this isn't truth and reality. He's actually bonkers. And so they send for his mother and his brothers to come and rescue him and take him away. Um, you know, they're coming and saying, you know, we've got to take him out to safety somewhere because evidently he's gone mad. 
And so word comes, evidently the crowds are so thick that his mother and his brothers can't even get into the place where he's at. So they kind of send somebody in who comes into the presence of Jesus and says, your mother and your brothers are outside and they think that you're really gone nuts and so they need to come in and take you away somewhere. And he turns to those who are with him and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? The ones who do the will of God, the ones who do the will of the Father are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. See, he's pulling back this veil. He's showing that the really real realm is that which cannot be seen. It's that which can be seen with spiritual eyes But because we are children of God, because we are sons and daughters of God, therefore brothers and sisters, this is true family. This is a deeper family. And for all Christians throughout the world, that is the deepest roots of family that there are. Because we're family in God. See, this is, this, this is meant to be shocking. Jesus is meaning to be startling here. And if it's startling to us, it was even more startling to his audience back then, for whom family was identity. You had no identity outside of your biological family and that through tracing your heritage all the way back through the ages and particularly in the Jewish culture all the way back to your forebears, the sons of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are our fathers, Jacob's sons. So which tribe? So family, tribe, and then nation. They had no identity outside of that. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, your identity, your true identity is actually when you do the will of the Father because you are then sons and daughters of the Most High God. And if we are each sons and daughters of the Most High God, then we are truly brothers and sisters. You see, gender doesn't come into play. Socioeconomics doesn't come into play. Race doesn't come into play. Clubs don't come into play. Nothing comes into play except the prime allegiance that we have to Jesus Christ. That makes us family. See, we are truly family. You are my brothers and sisters, truly in the truest sense of what it means to be family. The veil is pulled back and we are family. Only when our primary allegiance and our primary focus is on Jesus Christ and the church forgets this at her peril. We are united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't get 
to see that reality sometimes. We're blinded to that reality because in this day and age, we are so used to looking at things in the physical realm and to making science our God. If science says it, it must be true, but there's a kind of faith in science because you know science continues to make more and more discoveries. And things that we've once held as true in science are found now sometimes to be erroneous. If you remember, you know, several decades ago, I don't even know when it was, but it came out that you kind of, you are your genes. You know, your DNA is set. Well, there's a whole new area now of science called epigenetics. That, that old saying of you are how you were created, how your genes made you, your DNA is kind of said, is called genetic determinism. And it kind of makes us victims of our genes. But now studies are looking at this whole area of epigenetics, the epigenome, that actually kind of opens up and closes out your DNA. There can be changes to your genes. That is possible. And they found that that happens um, through uh, magnetic uh, resonances, through, through intention. And, and this is from non-Christian scientists, but from Christian scientists, prayer also has that effect of changing. It's not determinative of who we are. Um, the, and certainly in the realm of, of, of the science about the creation, quantum physics is, is, is just, I mean, I don't understand so much of what they're talking about, but um, it's amazing. Quantum physics is getting us closer and closer to the biblical narrative, especially of creation. It's like biblical narrative is here and science is catching up with that which is described in the Bible about let there be light. And in that first, you know, less than a millisecond, uh, read Eric Metaxas's book, Miracles. It's absolutely amazing on this. It's more than I can go into here. But they're also finding that there are physical changes when we forgive somebody. It's actually good for us. I mean, Jesus tells us that. It's what we're to do, but it's actually good for us. There was a recent study I was reading just this last week, and I can't tell you whether it was in the science section of the Daily Telegraph or where it was, but it was saying that they've done studies, generosity releases dopamine into the system. You know, dopamine is that feel-good chemical that makes us feel good. And so they found out that generous people are actually very happy people. Um, that they just give, not with any sense of reward, but in giving, they are rewarded. There's a happiness that comes about, and it actually can be seen to be physically true. Dopamine is released um, into the bloodstream. Of course, Jesus knows that at the, at the heavenly dimension realm, it's also very important, for he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
for, or in the heavenly realm, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. That which is the truest, the realest reality, is not that which can be seen in this earthly realm, but the heavenly dimension which through Jesus is even now existing, parallel and intersecting with the earthly dimension for those who believe. See, both Paul and Jesus are pulling back this veil so that we can see this other dimension in which we do actually exist if we have eyes to see. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, Our outer nature, our physical mortal bodies are wasting away, but we do not lose heart because our inner beings are being renewed. Now, I can tell you that this mortal body is wasting away because year after year there are more aches and pains that just go along with aging. It's, it's, it's part of life. These bodies wear out. These mortal bodies wear out. Even if Madison Avenue will tell you that the next best thing in the bottle will slow that, they wear out. But he says we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because we have permanent, eternal bodies made by God that have an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. That word is kavod. Weight. A weightiness to the glory Beyond all measure, what our eyes cannot see is indeed the truest reality. That though these are wasting away, our inner beings are being renewed, set apart, held in God's hand with a weight of glory. And he uses the analogy of a tent Remember, Paul was a tent maker. That's how he made his living. That's how he sustained his ministry. He and Priscilla and Aquila, they all three were tent makers. So he uses this image. A tent is a temporary dwelling place. Um, you set it up. If you're traveling around, you set it up. You can take it on your back and you can put it down uh, wherever you want to. But it's temporary. It's made out of hide or whatever in this day and age canvas. It's temporary. He said, that's what these bodies are like. This is a tent. This body is a tent. It's temporary. But there's a really substantial body, like a building made of stone that's weighty, that is so amazingly glorious, that is being made in heaven's realm. And when heaven and earth come together and are renewed, that will burst forth into all its glorious and eternal existence. It's being renewed day by day. That is what is really real. This is temporary. And Paul says this, Look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen, for what can be seen is temporary, 
But what cannot be seen is eternal. Some of you might have heard of the Doctor Who series. You might have seen the movie Matrix. Um, There are others, and they're all about different dimensions. They're about moving in Doctor Who, in particular in a TARDIS, a time machine, from one dimension to another. And I think those have such an allure for people because we know that this isn't the only dimension. In fact, we get views into a different dimension, a different way of being. And I think that's the allure of those. We actually do exist also in a different dimension, but it's so much more glorious than any celluloid can possibly show you because it's God's dimension. It's all the glory of God, all the love of God, a glorious place. And they're pulling back the veil. Jesus says, look, this is your true family. Paul says, look, don't look at this body, look at the other one with the amazing weight of glory that is being prepared for you. And you know, that dimension, heaven's dimension, we see that at times, don't we? I mean, sometimes just sitting by the beach and hearing the ocean, you just kind of get lost in this amazing place where God dwells and you get to really sense the nearness of God heaven's dimension breaks in at baptism in an amazingly strong way here we are at the waters at the font and here are those that are in this temporary tabernacle tent of human skin. And but for those waters, here is a destruction of the body and finally eternal death. But those waters, they're the doorway through the veil. We make it through that veil from earth's dimension. We die in the waters of baptism with Christ, are raised with him, through his resurrection, and we walk into heaven's dimension forever. You're baptized, sealed with the Holy Spirit in baptism, marked as Christ's own forever. We move from this earthly realm into the heavenly realm, and yet we still live in this earthly realm, and we are too. It's not about taking us out Elsewhere in scripture, it says what we do here for God's kingdom in his heavenly realm, in his dimension, what we work here on earth is never lost. At the end of the age, when Christ returns and heaven and earth come together again and recreated new because God dwells with his people, what we have done will be refined in fire and somehow or other given back to us and we see this reward of that which has happened when we have followed and made our allegiance only with Jesus Christ. 
heaven's dimension intersects with earth's dimension here at the Eucharist. God's hand comes through the veil and feeds each and every one of us with himself in the body and blood of Christ. Sustenance for this earthly journey, filling us with heaven's dimension, making us a part of heaven's realm. It intersects when we, when we have prayers and we see prayers answered. That Jesus is still in the crowds. He is still healing his children in the crowds. No longer needing to go and have physical sustenance of food. He is still entering in through the prayers of the people. And he is healing his children. And it intersects in worship. When we as brothers and sisters, God's family, come together and worship God, heaven and earth intersect in an amazing way. You know that worship is not about us. It's not about how we feel about the music, how when we leave here, how that worship made us feel. Worship is not about us. If we're the center of what we think and happens at worship, we've got it all wrong because God is the focus of our worship. It's not about how we feel when we come out of worship. It's whether or not we've glorified God in our worship. But paradoxically, when our focus is on giving worth to, which is what worship is about, when we are giving worth to God, when we are praising God, when we are thanking God for all that he has done, when our focus is off of ourselves and on God, what happens? We're changed. This is from board-certified psychiatrist and psychopharmacologist, Dr. Timothy Jennings. Worshipping a loving God actually rewires our neural circuits so that we don't respond with anger as quickly or easily. It also makes us more physically capable of feeling empathy, compassion, and love for others. Science is catching up. See, worship is good for us. Worship actually transforms us into the image of Christ. That's what worship does when our focus is on God. In the words of Shakespeare's Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And Paul says, let us look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For both Jesus and Paul pull back the veil and we see that we live in this parallel and intersecting realm where we are living fully in this earthly dimension but heaven has broken in and we are part of heaven's realm and we go out there and we take heaven's dimension with us into the world as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I pray this week that you would look with eyes that cannot see but can see a truer reality 
of that which who you are, the weight of glory that is being set aside by heavenly hands for you for eternity. Amen.